0: Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, and we'll begin reading in verse 25. Luke chapter 10. And we will begin reading in verse 25. This is a passage of scripture that is unique to Luke. He is the only gospel writer that tells us about this. Now, Matthew does tell us about the conversation with the lawyer that Jesus is about to have. But he doesn't tell us the rest of the story. But Luke will, and it's important. So let's read together. Jesus is out teaching one day and says in verse 25, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know when you put the creator of the universe to the test, It's got to be worth at least us watching. It's incredible. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? He was an expert in the law, so how does it read? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that same road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. And likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place, he seemed to have gotten closer and saw him, he passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. I I don't want to get uh, too presumptuous, but we are blessed with several passages in Luke that we don't see in any of the other Gospels. The story of the prodigal son is one of those, but the word Luke or the name Luke is a Gentile name, so it's quite likely he is a Gentile. And it's also quite likely that some of these stories that may have caused some problems for the other gospel writers were no problem at all for Luke. It's hard to imagine a Jew telling the story of a prodigal son who is a Jew who is eating slop with pigs, but uh, Luke has sausage biscuits for breakfast every morning, so it's not a problem for him. I'm not sure exactly, uh, but we do know that Luke has blessed us with an incredible story. Now this lawyer, he is an expert in the law. The word's different than scribe. So here is a guy that he not only is probably a scribe, he also very well could be a Pharisee as well. But he asks a question, and it's a good question, but it's a terrible motive. He wants to know, what must I do to be saved or to have eternal life? Problem number one with his question is the way he words it. Because when he says, what shall I do, I just hang on, it's it's worth hearing, but it's an aorist participle in the Greek language. And aris means punctiliar action and of course participle is an ing word so literally he is saying what should I be doing so that I can have eternal life and, and, and it's like a box I need to check I, I want eternal life and I want to make sure that my salvation is complete so if you don't mind would you let me know, Rabbi, exactly what it is that I need to do? What one thing do I need to accomplish to make sure that I have checked the box and that one day I can have eternal life? The rich young ruler, he did the same thing in Luke eighteen eighteen. He came and asked Jesus, and uh, poiesis is the word it And it is a very same word in both accounts. He says, what must I do? What should I be doing? What is it that I can do and once it's done, it's taken care of? What box do I need to check? What do I need to make sure that I have punched on my little ticket here to make sure that I can have eternal life? The second problem was just simply asking For eternal life. It is a question that, boy, it's thousands of years old and alive and well today. What do I need to do to make sure I go to heaven? I hear people sometimes now word it differently, but a lot of people ask, do do you think a person can do such and such? And and, and still go to heaven. And, and, and it's like getting into heaven is, is the big deal. And, and then we have others who we call universalists, and they believe, well, everybody's going to heaven. Now, you Christians may be more serious about it, but boy, somehow, some way or another, one day everybody is going to be going to heaven. The problem is this. You are assuming everybody wants to go to heaven. A good question to ask when somebody wants to know what all I can do and yet still go to heaven. Do like Jesus. Jesus was bad about it. He did it here. He loved to answer questions with a question. Now it wreck a marriage, but it's good theology to try it. Just ask him, well why do you want to go to heaven? That's a great question. Why do you care so much about going to heaven? And, and here's the, the irony of it. If the only reason you want to go to heaven is you don't want to go to hell, you're not going to heaven. That's, that's the whole problem. It's, Jesus is not selling fire insurance. Uh, it, it's about a relationship with God. It's not just about getting into heaven there are people that don't know God don't want to know God don't believe in God if they do believe in him they have got some whacked out notion about God or whatever there are tons of people like that and 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 I think you would have to assume if you were a universalist that well they'll it'll take them a while to catch on but once they've been in heaven a few million years it'll kind of wear on them you know uh, they'll get to where they like it and they'll figure out who Jesus is and, and they'll find out what we do every day up there. And uh, There are a lot of people, they don't care one thing in the world about going to heaven and I can tell you, God loves you too much to, to force something on you that you don't want to do. If you don't want to have a relationship with Him, He is not going to make you have one with Him. It's been said that hell itself is, is one of the greatest assurances that God recognized man's ability to make a choice. You can decide you might not want to go. Another problem is that he's wanting to justify himself. Uh, and if you notice, he pulls a little trick here. It's an argument we use in logic sometimes. It means define your terms. So he looks at Jesus and he says, who is my neighbor? You've brought up this argument about my neighbor. I I just like to know, well, exactly who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers with a question and he says, well, what is written in the law? You're an expert in the law. He says, how do you read it? And in the end, you will notice that Jesus totally ignored his question. And instead of answering for this man, who is your neighbor, he answers for this man, to whom are you a neighbor? It's pretty incredible what Jesus does. I'd like to share with you this morning the way we witness to the world. You and I witness to the world by being Jesus with skin on, someone had said. We are the body of Christ. We represent him on this earth. And this story that Jesus tells, we take it out of context sometimes, and and I'm sure there's a time in my life I probably have done the same. There are a few passages I have over the years of learning and growing, but it's not about this, this is not a story about if, if you take care of sick and hurting people, you'll go to heaven. That, that, that's not the point of the story at all. It's also not Jesus saving a man. There are people that make analogies out of parables, and it's one of the worst things you can do, but they, they make an analogy out of every single point in this parable that Jesus came and and the, the wine was him cleansing him of his sins and, and all of that. And somewhere or another they get baptism in there. And the two coins that he left behind is the ordinance of, of, of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And all of that. And, and they just tangle the whole story up. And they miss the whole point of the story. Jesus says for you and I, this is how. He's going to tell us exactly this is how that my people can let the world know you have something inside of you that they don't have but need. He starts out, he teaches us actually three things. He teaches us first of all what this world will do to you. We're seeing that on a grand scale nowadays. This is a dangerous place where this took place and it's a dangerous place where you and I live. It's about 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho and it's it's about a 3,600 foot drop. So you've got one of these little mountain roads that you just go back and forth and back and forth and 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 if uh you've seen these pictures or uh, these videos on the internet about the world's most dangerous roads and you you got a bus full of people that are are on this road and and the two the outside tire on the back is hanging over the edge and it's just thousands of feet to the bottom. We we'll go to the Holy Land and if you go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you get to be on one of the world's most dangerous roads. I thought it was funny when I was over there. We had a bunch of students uh, with us from Garden Web University. And they, when we were going around these curves, the drop-off was on this side of the bus. They got on that side of the bus. And I'm like, that ought to save you there. If we go over the edge, I was trying to shorten the fall at least by about seven or eight feet. It's a dangerous place. Curves everywhere, plenty places to hide, and a man was really a fool to try to travel this spot by himself. Our world is a dangerous place. Let's just look at what Jesus says happened to this man. It'll teach us something about what our world will do to us. First of all, it will degrade you. It says in verse 30 that they stripped him. This is just absolute humiliation. They could have taken his money and left him his clothes. But now they had to strip him. And there was also no reason uh, for them to beat him. But when you want to totally humiliate somebody, uh, boy, this, it, it can happen in our world so fast. I am reminded especially this week of of how our kids in high school and junior high and younger kids even, and maybe college, it it, it is so easy for them to hear the comments of somebody else and, and to be bullied. You don't have to be hitting the nose to, to be bullied. It, it's just, boy, nowadays, uh, my son and I were talking about it the other day with cell phones and all of that. You can't do something stupid in high school without 200 people knowing about it uh, within two minutes and it don't even have to be you that did it somebody can accuse you of doing it and spread it everywhere and and boy i'm telling you it just breaks my heart we we saw it this uh, this week with some things that have happened some of you in the family here you know all about it but my goodness for uh, our a lot of our young people they're just not at that spot yet to where they can see beyond that particular circumstance what what is temporary looks permanent to them. And, and what is absolutely solvable looks irresolvable to them. And, and what will pass away looks like it will last forever. And it only takes a little while in the mind of a high schooler. And the next thing you know, a lot of them do something terrible. Man, man. We live in a world that would degrade you. Secondly, it would damage you. They beat him in verse 30. They beat him. No need for the beating, but boy, they just had to beat him. And I mean, that's it. we see it again in our world today. The, 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 you just turn on the news and, and it seems to be everywhere and people just going over the top. I saw a guy the other day, he was ever bit as big as I am, that was a little toddler. I, I don't know if it was in a... He was walking, I don't remember if he was walking or in a a little push-around buggy thingy, uh, whatever that's called, I I can't think of it. But he just walked by this kid in one of our major cities. And he just keeps walking and never loses stride. And he hits him so hard he pulls him, slam up in midair, And that little toddler hits the pavement and the guy just keeps right on walking. For what? Nothing. But that's what our world will do to you. It'll, it'll hurt you. I, I. It made me think this week about a story that I remember reading about some time ago, and I think there's been a documentary on it now. I don't know if you ever heard of a young man named Emmett Till. Emmett Till was a black boy that was born in 1941 in Chicago, Illinois. He had family behind in Mississippi. I believe at the time that a family could leave Mississippi and get on a train one way, and I think the cost was $16, and they would take you all the way to Chicago. If you've ever wondered why so many minorities are packed inside our inner cities. They went there because life in the South was so treacherous. Well, Emmett was born in Chicago. When he was 14, his uncle came up from Money, Mississippi and invited Emmett to come home with him for a few weeks and hang out with his cousins and have some fun. And so Emmett went home with him. He wasn't there but a few days. They were out picking cotton. That's what they did for a living. And They stopped by a store to get some candy, something to drink, something like that. And the woman behind the counter claimed that Emmett did something or said something that was off color. A few nights later, that woman's husband and another man came to the house where little Emmett was staying. And they took him, and they beat him to where he was unrecognizable. And then they hung him, and then they shot him. And then they took and wired him to a fan out of a cotton gin that would weigh a couple hundred pounds and threw him in the Tallahatchie River. Somebody noticed the body. The two men went to trial it was a joke from the start. It was all white dudes on the jury, and as a matter of fact, they joked later, the only reason we stayed in session as long as we did is to try to look like, make it look like we were actually making a decision. There was a mortician in Money, Mississippi, who sent little Emmett's body home to his mother, and they were going to have a funeral, and they had nailed the casket shut, If I showed you a picture, and I won't, but if you could have seen his face, you'd have had to look a long time to realize that was the face of a human being. They beat him so severely. And they got away with it. When his little body got back to Chicago, his mother says, take the lid off that casket, and they said, ma'am, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. For one, he's not been embalmed, and he doesn't look very good. She says, take it off. She says, either you take it off or I'll take it off. And there were thousands, if I remember correctly now, thousands of people in Chicago that lined up to come through to see little Emmett's body. And she said, we're going to take the lid off this thing, and they're going to see what these men did to my little Emmett. And I want to tell you something, that started something in this country that still hasn't stopped. It started a movement for people to try to stand up for rights and and against racism. But I'm just telling you, it is stories like that that makes me understand that humanity, when people say, oh, people are acting like animals, no, they're not. Animals won't do that to you. Animals will do something to you bad if they're scared or they're hungry, but boy, they don't know what hatred is. Human beings are are capable of hate. They're capable of going way over the top. They're capable of killing and hurting innocent people that do not deserve it any way whatsoever. It is is horrendous what the, the depraved, unsaved human being it's capable of. It's just incredible. They got away with it. Her husband died. A few years ago, I saw where she was living in Raleigh. She later, the lady behind the counter, admitted, I lied. They're still trying to bring charges against her. As late as this month. I saw where they were still trying to bring her to trial. Because of Double Jeopardy, they couldn't retry the dudes, her husband and the other person. They couldn't try them again. But Look Magazine interviewed them a couple of years later, and both of them admitted, yep, we took him, and we beat him, and we shot him, and we hung him, and we threw him in the river. And there's nothing you can do about it. God help us. That's what the world can do to you. That's what the world can do to you: damage you, desert you. Verse 30 says they went away and they left him. They left him laying there to die, just abandon him, totally. Number four: desert you, degrade you, damage you. Can also destroy you. Says, left him half dead. He was hopeless. There's no way he could get himself out of the ditch. He was hopeless. They, they, they left him there, absolutely, totally destroyed. His life was coming to an end had someone not intervened. I, I, I saw a uh, special recently on the world's worst prisons, and uh, uh, there's one called, if I pronounce it correctly, Miss Hortensia El Pinal de San Pedro. The prison in St. Peter. So, it's in uh, Brazil. I told the guys about it Wednesday night. You know what they don't allow in that prison? Guards. If you do something, on the streets of that town, they take you And there'll be policemen there at the front office. They arrest you. They take you in. They fingerprint you. They walk you down a hall and they shove you through a gate, but they don't go in it. They lock that gate back up and they get out. And that's where you are. There is a guy in there that runs the whole place. He's killed four people. That's what he went in for. No telling how many he's killed since he's been in there. Guys can actually take their wives and children in with them. Now the place is like a couple of city blocks and it is absolutely destitute with food. Filth and scum and, and trash everywhere. But if you can come up with enough money, you can even take your own family in there. But it is a horrible, horrible place. And if they kill you, nobody does anything. There are no rules. There are no guards. There's no anything. When you go in there, man, you might as well just be sent straight to hell because that's where you are. And you're without hope. I could go on. What's happening in Ukraine? Those are all things this world can do to you. Secondly, though, Jesus said, let me tell you what religion can do to you. Religion, first of all, two things. It can show piety. That means they can act all religious and serious. It says by chance a priest was going along and and he went down that road and he saw him and went by on the other side. And then a Levite came by and he was kind of a priest assistant, you might say, associate, associate priest. That's what we would call him. He came to the place. It looks like in the Greek he walked over closer and took a look, but he kept going as well. Now there could have been a few things going on here and I don't want to read into the text, but one thing a priest couldn't do was touch a dead body. What if this guy's dead? If he's dead and I touch him, <laughs> as much as I'd love to help him, I'll be unclean and it'll take weeks for me to get purified and go through all the ceremonies and, and priests travel this road all the time because there were thousands of them that worked in Jerusalem and, and maybe he wanted to help the guy, but boy, they just were all kind of issues with that. They also had this thing called Deuteronomic Theology, don't worry about the big long word, but in Deuteronomy, Paul, uh, Mo, Paul, yeah, Paul, Moses, I'm glad I heard me say that so I can correct it. But Moses says that do what's right and you'll live. Well, by the time the New Testament came along, he said it several times. They had taken that and created, leave it up to religious people, we'll do it every time. They had created a whole theology built around that. And so they believed if something bad happened to you, that that's God punishing you for something you've done. I kind of grew up with some of that. Boy, somebody's house would burn down and I'd hear our family say, well, I don't know, the Lord may be trying to tell them something. And it might have been, yeah, get a new wood stove because that one burnt your house down. I don't know. But we just knew God was in it. Somebody had a wreck. We couldn't believe God was just trying to tell them you needed some more tires on the front. No, it had to have been some kind of message that God is trying to send. And I know sometimes God has done that. But I'm just telling you that they were worried about both the priest and the Levite. No doubt were worried that this might be God's work here. This guy might have done something wrong and he might deserve what he's getting and we can't interfere with the work of the Lord. Boy, now that's some piety on steroids right there, buddy. We don't know why. Jesus doesn't tell us. But we do know they left him. They left him right there. Man, secondly, prejudice. Piety and prejudice. In verse 33, Jesus says, but a Samaritan. And I can promise you, every Jew in that crowd that heard him say, but a Samaritan. They just knew. ah, the robbers must have come back. Jesus is about to identify the culprit. They had no problem with Jesus saying, but a Samaritan. But then when he says, but a Samaritan passed that way. And saw him and had compassion, and took care of him. Took him to an inn. Made sure everything was seen about in his behalf. Boy, I can tell you now that stopped the crowd in their tracks. That stopped the crowd in their tracks. A Samaritan. Jesus had an odd relationship with the Samaritans. Now, just remember, where did Samaritans come from? In the Old Testament, when the ten tribes went into captivity in the north in 722, there were many that stayed behind. They didn't all get carried away into Assyria. Some stayed behind. The Jews married Gentiles, and their offspring were half-breeds, they called them and then they named them the Samaritans because of the location as to where it happened. And I can tell you the only person that a Jew hated more than a Gentile was a Samaritan. Because they thought, well, you're pretending to be something you're not. Being halfway as cool as us is worse than not being cool at all. They use that word cool all the time. He's the one that showed mercy. If you notice at the end, and we're not quite there yet, so don't get excited, but when Jesus asked him, now which one of those was a neighbor to him, did you notice he didn't say the Samaritan? This guy couldn't even say the name. Well, you know. The one that, well, you know, showed mercy. Him. That one. If I'd have been Jesus, I'd have gone, which one? (laughs) He couldn't even say his name. Boy, racism. That's what it was. It's not a religious thing for them. Pure old racism. Philip Yancey. Wrote a book, I think in 77, somewhere along there. But uh, it was a book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And I, I want to read you a little excerpt from it. I think he was going to church in Atlanta when this happened. It was in 1960. He said at our church in Atlanta, I think, it was a Baptist church He said, we had a church lookout squad. I don't think we have one. Do we have a church lookout squad? We sort of do, but they're not looking for color. They're looking more for fully automatic hand grade throwing machine things. They would give you a piece of paper if you came to the church and you were black. And Yancey put a copy of that piece of paper in his book. I want to read it to you. If you came to that church in 1960 and you were black, they'd hand you a slip of paper that said, Believing the motives of your group to be ulterior and foreign to the teaching of God's word, we cannot extend a welcome to you. And respectfully request for you to leave the premises quietly. Quietly. Scripture, it says, does not teach the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. He is the creator of all, but only the father of those who have been regenerated. If any one of you here is with a, here with a sincere desire to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we shall be glad to deal individually with you from the Word of God And at the bottom, it said, Unanimous Statement of Pastor and Deacons, August 1960. Yancey goes on to say that when Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, he says, Our church, same church, founded a private school as a haven for white kids, expressly barring all black students. He says, a few members left the church in protest when the kindergarten turned down the daughter of a black Bible professor. But most of us approved of the decision. He says, a year later, the church board rejected a Carver Bible Institute student for membership. His name was Tony Evans. That's what religion can do for you. I grew up in a church. We sent money for missions all over the world. And I don't even think I was an adult yet. And I can tell you, friend, when I was a teenager, not only did I not know much, I didn't even suspect much. But I I don't even think I was an adult before I began to wonder, why do we send money all over the world, to lead people to Christ, that if that same person made it to America and came to Anderson, South Carolina, he would not be allowed in the door of our church. If he wanted to thank us for sending a missionary, he'd just have to do it out in the yard. And then he'd have to be getting along. I was raised in a racist family. My dad said one time, my dad said that he didn't have anything against blacks. That's, that's always a trigger statement right there, okay? Anytime you hear somebody start out with that, you know, here comes something really dumb. My dad said, but if they really want to go to church and really worship God, they'll find them a black church. After years of preaching and getting and being blessed to preach in some black churches, I almost agree with him. If they really want to have some serious worship, they might want to go to a black church. I preached in some black churches. They'll preach you slammed to death. They'll finish your sentences. Really? Really? You start quoting a verse of Scripture, they'll finish it for you. I remember preaching one time uh, at a revival in a black church, and man, there was a couple of ladies on the front row, and they were acting out everything I would say. And when I talked about God killing the serpent, and I said, you know, if you want to kill a serpent, you got to get to that head. And it was out of Genesis 3. God said, I'll crush his head. And they were both of them. They were doing just like that on the front row. It's sad, but we baptized our racism in the South years ago and made it a God thing. Fools. That's what we were. And then thirdly and last of all, what the body of Christ must do for you. A Samaritan's going to teach us. Does it mean that this made this Samaritan saved? Because we don't get saved by doing good works. But Jesus said, if you are one of my disciples and you want to really spend eternity with me, then this is what we'll do. First of all, he had compassion. It says in verse 33, but a Samaritan, if we witness to the world, this is how we do it. It's through compassion. The Samaritan who was on a journey came to him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him in verse 34, got down. In the ditch with him. At some point, you have to get in the ditch with them if you're going to help them. It's hard to help them from a distance sometimes. You just can't keep throwing money at it. You can't just keep saying, Oh, if you'll call our church, we support this, that, or the other, and maybe they can help you or whatever. You can't just keep uh, feeding people honey buns on the end of a pitchfork. You finally got to get involved. And sometimes you have to get down in the ditch where these people are if you really want to help them. Uh, splanknidsomai, there's a good name for your next child, boy or girl. Splanknidsomai is the word we get our word spleen from in the Greek. And when it says he felt compassion, that's the word splanknidsomai, it means internal organs. Because for them, when they felt compassion, it was like you felt it in your gut. That's how they, that's how they described it in, in the Greek. And, and it's the word that Jesus uses here. He felt it in his gut. He felt it down deep inside of him. Literally, I guess you would say, if you really want to serve God, it takes guts. Because you've got to feel it down in here. Just some passive Notion to get them out of your hair is not compassion, my friend. That's escapism. That's hypocrisy. He felt it in his gut. Jesus says another thing you need to do is comfort them. Verse 34, he poured oil on the wound. You know what oil did? It softened those old crusty scabs. I was raised by my grandmother. You've heard tons of stories, I know. She had a first aid kit that sat on the mantel. I bet Terry Skidmore knows exactly what it is. It was a fruit jar. and No, it didn't have in it what you think. We were Christians. We would never put it on the mantel. We'd keep that hid somewhere. But in that fruit jar on the mantel was kerosene oil. I'm telling you don't come in the house telling granny you cut something unless you want to smell like a tractor trailer for about three weeks. She'd rub you down in some kerosene oil. Our cousins would come down every once in a while and (laughs) they they would want to uh, pick blackberries and my grandma would have them ready to go. She'd soak kerosene strings, strips of cloth and she'd say, tie them around your ankles. We have a we have a vicious, vicious wild beast with teeth like razors. They're called chiggers. You better put these around your ankles. Oh, I loved it when they wouldn't. Because it wasn't be about an hour into Blackberry picking, and you'd see them over there, and man, and they look like Michael Jackson. <laughs> Kerosene oil was helpful. Oh, I remember as an adult when I was on construction and welding pipe and doing things like that with John Crowder. We'd get a cut and we'd go over to the old truck and stick it down in some diesel fuel. Soften that wound. Bringing comfort to people. And I'll just tell you this. Sometimes to bring comfort, all you do need to do is sit there with your mouth shut. Don't worry about what you to say. Just be there. Just be there. Cleansing. He poured wine in. Purifies the infection. Progressive Christianity is not much on dealing with the infected part. If there's parts of someone who has uh, fallen prey to the world and there's infection and need for cleansing, they are more likely to start a group of other people who need cleansing and tell everybody that they're all right. That wine can burn and that wine can hurt, but the alcohol in it provides uh, 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 the the medicine for the infection. And, and so I, I think we need to make sure that we're willing to do that as well. But last of all, and I'll close. Jesus says, if you want to witness to the world, here's your chance. Show him compassion, show him comfort, show him cleansing. And then last of all in verse thirty five, show him commitment. Don't just leave them. Says he took care of him, and then he left two coins. A denarii was a day's wage, and in that day the best I could find A day's wage would take care of that man in that inn for about a month. So if he had to lay there and heal for two months, it was paid for. And not only was it paid for, he says, I'll come back by. And if he owes more, I'll pay that too. I'll take care of that. Man, that's a commitment. I understand. Believe me, I do. It's hard to help people. It's actually impossible. Unless they want help. I know that. But I have to tell you something. We're pretty quick to judge sometimes. It's hard to know who might want it and who might not. Could you imagine when Jesus headed over to where the Demoniac was hiding in the cave and he would run out naked and cut himself with stones and break chains. Could you imagine the old religious hierarchy thinking, well, wait till the new preacher gets a load of the naked man. Who would have ever bet that Jesus would barely get on shore before this man came and fell down and worshiped him? You be careful looking at people and deciding. That man there might be a good, that's a good prospect. He's liable to get saved. I can tell you, I've seen people in three-piece suits all slim and trim and proper and all that and They really look like somebody and they're never gonna get saved. But I have seen other people that they had stuff hooked everywhere, over here, over there, and then connected and tattoos and whatever and haircut and a blade. I don't see the blade much anymore. And I hate that one out because I was really wanting to do one. I think I might could work up a pocket knife. I'm not sure about a blade. Maybe some toenail clippers. You be careful deciding who you think is just really ripe for the picking. Jesus says when the sower went forth to sow the word of God, he sowed the hard soil, the good soil, the thorny soil, and the rocky soil. He didn't get out there and get a farm agent to show him where it was the best place to sow the seed. He knew my job is to just sow the seed, friend. As I close, this is what we've learned. The thieves basically said, and the word here is robbers. It is translated well. Thief was kleptos, that's a thief, kleptomaniac. A robber was a different word. These were the kind of men that hang beside Jesus. These were people that didn't just steal when you weren't home. They kicked in the front door and beat you to death. The thieves or the robbers, their idea was what is yours is mine and I'll take it. The religious crowds basically said, well, what is mine is mine and I'll keep it. But a Samaritan... Said, no, what is mine is yours, and I'll give it. What a lesson. I can tell you nothing will get the attention of the world better. It's better than handing out tracts, not saying anything wrong with that. It's better than beating on doors every Tuesday night. It's better that the best evangelism program in the world is when you let Jesus Christ and His love and His compassion, when you let it be realized in your life. When you are Jesus with skin on to somebody. That's how we witness to the world. Let's pray. Help us, God. Forgive us, Lord, where we fail you. Forgive us, God, where, Lord, we've been arrogant, presumptuous. Lord, where we've thought things that might not have even been true, Lord. Where we assumed we were right. God, forgive us for being like this lawyer and and just absolutely traipsing after A doctrinal purity and orthodoxy, Lord, to the extent that we know what we believe and we believe the right things, but we fail to do them. Help us, God. Forgive us where we've not done that. Help us witness to the world, Lord. There's so many. So many, Lord, that just need to hear that somebody cares about them, God. I pray you'd help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at Servantsway.com or email us at office at Servantsway.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.